human first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I chat with Jared Carroll, a speaker, facilitator, and coach focusing on DEIB, that's diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Jared's one of my favorite people on LinkedIn, always sharing honest, personal anecdotes and tangible, practical wisdom for elevating humanity at work. If it wasn't clear that he's a guy after my own heart, here's how he describes his job. To create inclusive cultures of belonging by modeling the value of public vulnerability and strategic storytelling. In this hour, Jared unfolds his own story of breakthrough and transformation through pain, from a 24-7 party jock to an open, kind-hearted ally. Get cozy for this fireside chat, and please enjoy episode 16, Real Talk for Real Change with Jared Carroll. Right. I am so excited to have you here, Jared Carroll, uh, on What's Betwixt Us. And uh, how are you doing today, Jared? Where are you calling in from? I'm doing great, Lisa. Thanks. Uh, I'm calling in from Oakland, California. Um, Beautiful. It's a nice day out and can't complain, getting towards the end of the week. Yeah. Although, what is time right now, really? I know. It's not, <laughs> it's not what it used to be, right? So... Jared, I'm so excited to talk to you here. I've had one amazing conversation with you already. Sadly, it was off air. Wish I had recorded it, but you, know, you are a um, you are a, a DEIB guy, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, uh, which was actually new to me that the B was added on there, but I like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, you are a facilitator and a coach um, helping people with these concepts and the concept of anti-racism. And I just feel like you are the epitome of empathy at work. And so I wonder if you could sort of describe how you would describe the work that you do day in and day out and how it's, how its roots come from empathy. Yeah. Well, thank you. First of all, for that, that flattering and warm and, and, you know, Great introduction. I'm I'm honored. So thank you very much. Let's see. Gosh, so much to uh, to talk about. So many different directions to go in. Um, first of all, the DEIB. You know, people use whatever acronym they want. That's just something I've kind of started using just to kind of capture everything. Um, and it's it's interesting that while I fully understand and and support the need to have. Uh, a diversity and inclusion kind of vertical, if you will, or industry, like there would be sales or marketing or engineering. Um, so I get it that there needs to be that. And really, it, it's it's not really, while there are industry best practices and things to do and things to know, it really, in my view, comes down to things like empathy, mm -hmm. right? That you know, people want to know, well, what is that? What do you do? How can I, how can I do DEIB? How can I, it's like, no, I mean, yeah, I could teach you a few things, but it's really, it's, it's the EQ side of things. And so for me, I've come at the work, um, you know, from a very personal place. Uh, it's been, a, it's, it's been and continues to be a journey of self-development, of self-actualization. And I think, you know, why, why empathy? Why do I center empathy? I think for me, when I was younger, my, you know, I grew up, my parents were divorced and my dad lived in San Francisco. I was in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And when I was 14, he told me he was gay. Mm -hmm. And so I'm this, you know, this is late eighties, Reagan's still president. I'm in suburbs of San Diego, riding my bike, playing soccer. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not about to have a gay dad. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't, um, I don't own it. I was embarrassed, confused, ashamed, so I don't tell anyone. So that was bad enough, but at least I had geographical safety, right? My dad lived 500 miles away, no one knew him, never had to tell anyone. Mm 
So about six months later, eight, six or eight months later, he called and he was crying. And I was, I remember I was watching TV. It's like family ties or something. The best. And he calls and he tells me that his partner, John had just died of AIDS. Wow. And he was, he was crying and I couldn't, he couldn't believe he was gone. And, you know, he really thought you were a good kid, Jared, all these things, you know, like this stuff that a 14, actually, I think I was 15 by that time, 15 year old kid doesn't, you know, want to have that type of conversation. Yeah. And so I wasn't really there for him. I had, I had no empathy, right? I had no, uh, I was so, you know, and granted I was 15. So most 15 year olds are kind of in their own head. Right. But, but I had, it was all about me. Like what's, is my mom going to find out? Like, do I have to tell anyone about this? Like, Oh my gosh. Like it was all that kind of self-centered stuff. And a few weeks later he wrote me a letter and he said he in, in that letter he said he was kind of happy to to hear me cry when he told me that john died because it it showed him that i understood the gravity of the situation yeah and here's the kicker though i i wasn't crying i just i had a cold that night and i was and i was sniffling oh wow and so i never told him that and so, you know, he lived for another 12 years, and then he died when I was 27, he died of AIDS himself. And so it's stories like that, and I could tell a half dozen, you know, many more stories similarly, where really missed an opportunity to lead with empathy, to show humanity, to explore connection, you know, all the things that I know now are, you know, what this work is about. And so I, I try to use my own journey both for myself to be in the work, but also to to share as I'm doing now with other people to see how I can be a model um, to motivate, to inspire, to embody some of the things that I think we could use more of uh, in the world. Yeah. Wow. I you had told me this story before, and it's it's just as powerful. And I think nothing is as good a sales pitch as a personal experience. And I, I mean, I'm not a salesy person, uh, <laughs> but I do know that people people will tune in more when you are opening yourself, when you are sharing of yourself first, then they're more likely to share of themselves. And I I wonder because like you know you said that you had some, some shame or feeling kind of hard in yourself about your response at the time when you were 15, but you know, you had to clear work through your own trauma before you could make space for your dads. I wonder if, if doing this in your daily life, doing this kind of work and having these kind of hard conversations help you continue to heal your stuff. It's like reciprocal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, yes. I mean, a hundred percent. And that's, that's largely why I do the work. You know, there's a difference between like, there's a, people think sometimes that if you talk about yourself, if you center your own needs, if you're, if you're aware of what you need to be, you know, happy, successful, whatever, that, that, that automatically means, you know, you're, you're a jerk or you're, you're, you're an egotistical, you know, idiot, you're a narcissist. And that can be true, and I think we see that sometimes uh, or often uh, in in politics and corporate and et cetera. But but I it's kind of like the you know fasten your own seatbelt type thing before your kids. Yeah, I I'm continually aware and 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 tweaking and trying to be mindful of what do I need to feel alive, present. Uh, like I'm making an impact. And so once you, if you really do that work kind of ongoingly, you get to a place where not like complacency or like cockiness or arrogance, but where you get to a place where you kind of know who you need to be and who, you know, how it works for you, where then you can be in a position to whatever. I mean, in my case, I'm a facilitator, I'm a coach, I'm a, you know, communications person, like, to help other people with their stuff. It's just like, uh, uh, as you said about putting, you know, your mask on first, it's, it's actually not selfish because you're, it's the, about the intention behind it. And the intention behind what you do is about being in the service of the greater world. And you can do that better if you, if you are like grounded and centered in yourself. 
Exactly. I wrote a piece on LinkedIn probably probably about two years ago. I think it was summer of 2018. And it had a kind of a funny, provocative title. It said, I think I remember it. It said, your lack of personal development is selfish and it's hurting others. Stop <laughs> now. <laughs> yes. I want that as a bumper sticker. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah. I'm trying to reframe, you know, and, and again, it it stems a lot of like what I do when I'm working with people and whatever it's one-on-one -on -one or delivering, you know, facilitating a conversation or coaching leader, you know, whatever the kind of arrangement or dynamic is, I feel, and including like anti-racism work, like me being a white guy doing anti-racism work, like I think my, my strength and my power is I, well, I will never claim to know any individual what goes on in their head, whatever their racial background or, or otherwise. I do come from a place like I used to think this, I used to be this way, whether it's around race or LGBT, like my dad or whatever it is, whatever the, the topic or concept is, like I was that guy in so many ways. I was a college athlete. I drank eight days a week, like all the things, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I know I, I dismissed people. I was uninterested in anything that, you know, wasn't sports and beer and, you know, like, so I know these extremes. I mean, of course, they never seem extreme when you're in them, but they're, so I know, like, I've come, I've moved it very intentionally away from that. And so I feel like I have a, like a lens into kind of, you know, mainstream behavior. Yes, well, you, I mean, I talk a lot about, I you talk know? a lot about, Trojan horsing ideas of empathy into places where they wouldn't maybe normally be. And, and in order to do that, you have to be able to blend with the mm -hmm. mainstream. So I think that you have this really unique perspective of having been on both sides of it. And the fact that you yourself have seen yourself transform in this way, I would imagine makes it so that you can believe that transformation is possible in anybody. Exactly. And you know, talking about empathy, empathy, and actually I was just, I just finished yesterday with a, a couple presentations for a client and it was, it was multi-layered and a lot of different perspectives, but one of the things, it, it's a big nonprofit and they serve a lot of youth of, of color. Mm -hmm. And so the, my contact in the organization wanted, wanted a white guy to come in and kind of share some perspectives um, with the mostly white workforce mm -hmm. who worked mostly with youth and families of color just some little mindset shifts around you know how are we looking at this work and the people we serve and the communities we're involved in and so a couple of the mindset shifts that i talked about was this difference between sympathy and empathy uh-huh so I don't know if you've seen there's a great little three minute clip of brene brown it's taken from one of her ted talks and a friend of hers did like this animation it's it's really awesome it's like two and a half minutes, three minutes. And it's, it captures so much of, of the idea of empathy. It's brilliant. And, and actually I've probably seen it, I don't know, a year ago, two years ago. So not, not that long ago. And it's really been central to my understanding of empathy and my, how I talk about it, how I teach it, how I share it with other people. And she says, you know, that empathy requires four things. Right. It requires perspective taking. So being able to, to you know, take the perspective of, of someone else. It requires uh, staying out of judgment. So non-judgment, which, you know, from a mindfulness background, that's kind of, you know, a lot of why I and others and many others practice mindfulness, right, to observe without judging or reacting. Right. Right. The third thing it requires is recognizing emotion. So seeing what someone else might be thinking, experiencing, feeling. And then the fourth part is like stating that. Mm -hmm. So you have these four things and, you, and on the surface you go, oh, okay, yeah, like those all kind of make sense, but why don't we do them all the time? Yeah. Right? Because yeah. it takes vulnerability. Yeah. And she says, so what we do is we, we replace what we, because we're, we're too afraid or we don't have the skills or the will, whatever, to truly be empathetic and truly be with someone. So, and we feel awkward or uncomfortable with that. So we, we, we say things that en actually end up being more like sympathy and less true empathy. 
Would you mind giving an example? Yeah, of, like, like versus empathy. Like, um, I'm trying to think of an example. Okay, so a a colleague of mine uh, lives in near Boulder, Colorado. I don't know if you've been to Boulder. It's it's beautiful. It's mm -hmm. just like beautiful around the side of the Rockies. There are the Flatirons. They're like these iconic. If you Google Boulder Flatirons, you'll see like, right. So it's this beautiful town, and they just this week, or and last week into this week had fires that like ravaged not the the town. I'm not sure exactly what the damage was in the town. I think it yeah. was a little bit north, but just really scary. People wow. had to be evacuated. So a colleague of mine. She was actually, you know, getting getting married. She was off for a few weeks, and she was getting married. And so, just to, today, I think maybe it was yesterday, we, we were reconnecting on a project. And I said, "Hey, how was the wedding?" And you know, and I said, "Oh, and you know, are you okay with the fire?" And so she said, like, her wedding was like the day that the fire was really. She had to be evacuated. Oh and they had to actually move move the wedding to like a a different place and. So it kind of all just, you know, so empathy would be something like, wow, like that must be really hard, to, you know, to have planned this whole thing. I'm sure you spent a lot of money and you had a lot of people and, and then just to have it just kind of your day be, you know, so, so drastically changed unexpectedly. Yeah. Right. That's, that's empathy. Just sh right. Sharing. Whereas sympathy might be, well, like, well, at least you're okay. At least you're happy oh. like at least you had you found another place to you know have the have the ceremony. So we're like we're looking to make it better. We're looking for you know because because we don't want to sit and be in that emotion yeah. with with the person. That's so interesting. I've never really thought about sympathy that way, but as a sort of like smoothing over the the rough or messy edges, as opposed to acknowledging the rough or messy edges, and yeah, being in that discomfort with the person experiencing it. Yeah. And we don't do that. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm saying you're perfect, Jared. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. And now I'm, and I'm, now getting, I'm, I'm getting, getting, okay. Are you getting an echo? Getting an echo? I'm not, no. Hmm. See, this is this is part of the experience. I'm gonna just I'm gonna put it my headphones on and see if it changes it. Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, I hear you. How does it sound to you? Okay, better. Yeah. Okay, we. I can I can echo that. I mean, I can edit that out. Or not. Or not. I have or empathy not. for you if you keep it in. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, I, I I was speaking to. Uh, Bernadette Smith recently, who I met also on LinkedIn. I feel like I'm finding the best gems of people on LinkedIn. Uh, and, you know, we had moments in that conversation, one where I lost my train of thought and a different one where she needed a moment to answer a question that I asked her. And so there were these sort of uncomfortable silences for both of us. And I was thinking of, of editing them out. And then I decided not to, because this is supposed to be a genuine human conversation. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, when I facilitate uh, conversations around race or, um, you know, different uncomfortable conversations that often people don't really want to be in those conversations. Sure. It's, it's my job. Part of my job as the facilitator to uh, appreciate that and empathize with the fact that someone doesn't want to be there. So yes, it's kind of this two like, hey, my job is to get us to talk about this and like, you know, share ideas and perspectives and, you know, kind of yeah. get uncomfortable, but not as a, not like you will obey me and you, you know, you need to speak X amount of minutes during this time, you know? And so oh, you get a lot of, you get a lot of, you throw a question out there and then you just kind of sit there, you know, for sometimes 20, 30 seconds. And finally, someone can't stand it anymore, <laughs> and they'll <laughs> and they'll respond with something, right? And then yeah. that's fine. So, and I, you know, you have empathy for that. Like that's, I mean, I'm comfortable. I'm an extrovert. I can talk about this stuff. No but you've deal. been uncomfortable before. You've been the uncomfortable one. You know what that mm -hmm. feels like, and you knew what was you know what was required for you to move through that, not to avoid it, to go around it, but to actually move. Through 
through it. Exactly. So exactly. when you talk about asking people these questions, I know you do, you know, you speak with groups, you have what you refer to as fireside chats. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about what the layout of those looks like? Yeah, I've, I've always liked the, the idea. I mean, I've been on panels, I've been moderating panels, I've been on a panel, I've been, I've interviewed people, I've been interviewed by people, I've been a speaker, you know, all these different, you know, speaking kind of air quotes I'm putting, you know, um, experiences. And they all have relevance and they're all, you know, appropriate for whatever the, the context is. And I've always found, like, I really like the idea of a fireside chat. Of course, in person is, is better. Um, but sure. of course, we're not having those as uh, as often or at all, really, as as we have as we're used to. But the idea that that there isn't one person kind it's a it's a it's a a leveling, it's kind of a flat relationship. Um, oh. There's no hierarchy. No one's the interviewer. No one's the interviewee. Um, that it's casual. It's as as if the two people were sitting having a beer or a coffee. Um, and just so happened that 20 or 30 or a hundred or a thousand or 10,000 people just happened to be listening in on their conversation. Like right. I, I like that, that vibe. It's kind of hard to, to, to recreate because not everyone has the same kind of vision as I do around that. So it does, people tend to kind of default into certain roles. I, I kind of sure. tend to default into facilitator mode and moderator mode. Sure. Right. And and someone else might default into being interviewed mode. Right. But as much as I can set it up and establish, like, let's just let's just chat and, and see what comes up, have a few talking points to kind of get us started and then go and have have faith, faith that and trust that whatever we are going to say, not because we're awesome people and we're so genius and, uh, you know, thought leaders and everything, but just have faith that whatever we're going to say is going to be worth saying and worth listening to. Yeah. Um, and I think there's power in that. Yeah. Well, there's, there's real permission in it. And mm -hmm. I recognize that kind of mindset as being similar to like when I first was learning to meditate where it's about mm -hmm. no matter what comes up, if it's sadness, if it's anger, if it's busy thoughts, whatever is coming up is, is exactly what needs to come up right now. Mm -hmm. And I love that you apply that to these conversations that I'm picturing as I'm picturing that them as people sitting in a circle, almost like around a bonfire, uh, which <laughs> yeah, a fireside like, chat. Yeah, exactly. But exactly. <laughs> but like tribal, like tribal storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you, you, you mentioned storytelling on your website and on your LinkedIn. And by the way, for the listeners, please check out both jaredcarroll.com and Jared's LinkedIn presence is amazing always. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, about storytelling, what you mean by storytelling, why it comes into your work. Yeah, no, I'm happy to. So in a way, storytelling is almost the wrong, not the wrong word, but like it's too limiting mm -hmm. because if you don't, you know, I think everyone listening knows what a story is and knows what it means to be a storyteller or to tell a story, right? We know kind of that idea. Sure. But if you don't really think of it deeper than that, it can seem like, oh, that's so cute or that's so nice to have. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's really good when a leader tells a story because you get to know, like, it can be very surface, right? right? And that, it still has value. And, you know, you got to, people are where they are at with it. But when I think of story, I think of like, really understanding and, and and embodying like who who you really are and who you want to be right mm -hmm. and so you know like at the top of our conversation talking about how i wasn't empathetic i was a jock i was a partier like that that was my narrative so really like storytelling the better word is probably like narrative what is your narrative and how is it how has it evolved and how is it continually evolving and mm -hmm. and when you bring it into you know leadership kind of conversations or um, community you know whether it's corporate or a team or you know whatever outside community what is 
what is our individual story, each of our you know individual narratives, and what is our collective narrative, and how do we share it uh, authentically, compellingly? I don't want to say appropriately because I don't want to feel like you know there's certain things you shouldn't share, but like in a, right. in a context that makes it relevant and impactful um, um, to the to the you know to the context, um, and so that that takes work because yeah. I can. I can teach you or anyone like the kind of components of storytelling. I mean, if you've read, if you've read any kind of children's you know, story, you know what a story is. If you've seen Star Wars, you know what a story is, right? So, right. So, right. But, like, but how do you, as the main character, how do you, Lisa, like, what is your narrative? Put yourself, you're the hero now. It's your life. It's your book. It's your movie. How are you going to yeah. tell it? Right. And so really owning that. So you show up uh, optimally for whatever, work you're doing um, authentically and compellingly so that the work has impact. Now, for me, it just happens it's this meta conversation that my work is narrative and EQ and, you know, DEI stuff. So um, it's kind of a, I don't know, I guess I'm privileged. I'm lucky to, to get to work on myself as I'm working, you know, with other people. I'm kind of simultaneously. Oh, I mean, that's beautiful. And that's, that's the dream. And I think that what's been really cool for me about doing this project is meeting other people like that who are, their work is just their own growth, mm -hmm. uh, that they let, um, th their own growth expressed outward, you know, uh, sort yeah. of le leading by example or having the, having, being so interested in your own growth that it becomes contagious to other people. Totally. Well, you, I mean, I know we're not, uh, the listeners aren't on video with us, but you might have seen behind me on my bookshelf this, this postcard that I, I keep from the Million Person Project. Uh, Heather Box and Jillian uh, Mohsin McQueen, they are partners, business and, and um, life partners, and they have a company called the Million Person Project. And they, they do a lot of getting people's stories and narratives ready kind of for public speaking and those types of things. So a little bit different emphasis than me, but um, they have this postcard that I keep and it says your truth will set us free. I love it. And so I kind of keep that close by because it's just a reminder of what I was saying earlier, you know, about that, like that article I was referencing about if, if you keep your, truth you know to yourself you're actually kind of being selfish because you're you might be have you might have something to say that i need to hear right now i agree and, and i think you, that we tend to yeah we tend to devalue our own truths exactly because we're so used to them but then if but that's what was such a a, a revelation for me in um in becoming a, a comedian and a storyteller and talking about things that I really didn't think were any kind of big deal. And then getting a positive response from people and having people approach me after and say, wow, that's exactly how I felt. I didn't know that anybody else ever felt like that. And it, it took, mm -hmm. it required me putting it out there, whether or not I thought it was valuable. It's not for me to judge. It's for the, it's for the world to take what works for them. Exactly. I mean, I can't tell you, I mean, I probably could if I thought about it and wrote it down. Like there's so many objections from individuals of why they shouldn't or can't or won't or don't want to or, you know, tell their story and in you know, so many versions and context and stuff. But, you know, oh, it's not interesting. Oh, I'm too shy. Oh, no one wants to hear it from me. Oh, it's not relevant. Oh, why would I do that in this context? Oh, I'm a professional. I'm a business. I'm an executive. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. And they're all some version of fear, right, of, you know, of, of their own power, of their own truth, of, of vulnerability, of being, you know, because as soon as you put yourself out there, you're going to get, you know, you're out there. And yeah. so you're, you're going to get people disagreeing, challenging you, gaslighting you, dismissing you. I mean, and I'm a white, straight, cis white guy. So imagine, you know, a queer black woman, for example, right. Right? right? So when I say, hey, everyone tell your story, bring your whole stuff to work, like I do believe that everyone can and, sh and should do that. And I, at the same time, I recognize that 
that might be easy for me, straight cis white guy, to say, but you know, so it's a there are different um, different dynamics at play, and you know, when we talk about belonging, right, the D E I B, yeah. You know, again, I'll bring in Brene Brown because I think she's so she's brilliant. The best. With, yeah, she is, um, and she <laughs> says, you know, belonging. You have to belong to yourself first, and belonging isn't. I think, what does she say? It's not asking you to change who you are. It's asking you to be who you are. So yeah. here's the challenge. People who have been marginalized and still are marginalized, underrepresented um, people from different groups. It's if, if people in the majority are going to not be who they are, are not going to have empathy, are not going to... Um, recognize their privilege and their power and how they shape the narrative, then you're not going to have people who are not of the majority feeling comfortable and safe to, you know, bring them, bring their whole selves to, to work or to wherever. So it's, it kind of takes all of us. I mean, I know that's kind of trite to kind of, you know, land there, but I believe it kind it. of is, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a collective, I mean, it's a collective wound that we have, to work through and heal and something that i learned recently uh with regard to uh somatic experiencing which is like a, a therapeutic technique designed to process you know tra feelings that have been trapped uh in mm -hmm. the body um that trauma um can stay can stay in the body through 12 to 14 generations you could be carrying trauma from previous generations that you didn't that others didn't work through. And then it's, it's to you to, to do it, to kind of untie that knot. And it just really brought home the idea of the collective and that yes, Americans really prize rugged individualism, right. Which kind of has gotten us into some trouble. Um, but uh, it, it's just more clear than ever how whatever we, whatever we process, whatever we share or don't share really does have a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. outside of us whether mm -hmm. we can see it tangibly or not i so much of what you said resonates um i just finished last night a book called the true flag and it um it was talking about what's i forgot the subtitle but basically america's uh entry into imperialism in 1898 mm -hmm. so in 1898 you had in a matter of i think it was weeks maybe months you had America, who's at that point, what, 100, 120 years old, right? Mm -hmm. In like a three to six week period, now they were colonizing or whatever you want to call it, taking over Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, Philippines, and Hawaii. Wow. And who was the leader of that? Teddy Roosevelt, the, the most iconic, rugged individualist, you know, the Rough Riders and the hero and all and so you think, okay, well, great, that's, that's Teddy and that's who he is and blah, blah, blah. But you realize like, well, no, that shaped, I mean, we're, here we are 122 years later and that ethos is, is still with us. Yes. And so I, I, I can't speak to, I'm aware of and I, and I appreciate, uh, you know, the idea of intergenerational trauma and racial trauma and, and these things, it's not something I've studied a lot. So I don't want to speak too, you know, um, authoritatively on it, but I totally under, understand that it's a thing and appreciate that it's a thing. And it's, you know, how much, how much energy, how much trauma has that ethos from a hundred plus years ago caused in, in, in those, what, how many generations? Six, seven generations. Yeah. Right. Of this, like conquer and you know, just you know, strength and you know, we're we're Power. we're doing the, you know, what's good for those poor people, those natives, those you know, all these you know, racial, <laughs> racist yeah. thinking. I mean, it's thinking, just you know, thinking I'm, that you know what's better for yeah. other people. Yeah. I, I mean, I I realize I'm getting a little bit on a soapbox, but but I think that's. Okay. <laughs> That's what you're talking about, right? I mean, yeah. where's the, the empathy? It's sorely lacking. Yeah. Well, right? it was lacking in the, in the establishment of the 
of the mindset to begin with. And, and that's why I think it's so exciting, right, to be alive right now and how conversations like the ones that you are having, the ones that you are facilitating, I feel like couldn't have happened any sooner. And I wonder from your perspective, because I have my perspective and I'm in my little bubble of people who are, you know, doing, trying to do the work. Do you feel over the course of just the past year, uh, a shift or a deepening or um, like a momentum in, in like a focus shift toward empathy, like in the right direction? Um, I think mostly yes. And the reason I qualify it is, and this is borrowed from Ibram Kendi in his book, uh, Stamped from the Beginning. And he talks a little bit about it and how to be anti-racist. So in Stamped from the Beginning, he traces, you know, five, five or 600 years of, of racist. I think he, his subtitle is like the, the, the definitive history of racist ide- ideas in America or something like that. Mm-hmm. So what he says is, um, these I every time we we like to say like oh well here we are in 2020 or 2016 whenever we wrote the book like and we're so much further along like there's no more slavery there's uh, you know pe- black people can vote you know all the things like oh you know there's it's it's legal to interracially marry we've had a black president like all these things that that point towards progress and they are progress and he says like that's great. And that's awesome. And, you know, congratulations to us. Like, and whenever there's progress, there's always uh, pushback. There's always defensiveness. There's always um, no, not progress. Right. And you're seeing it now. I mean, we, yeah, we had a a black president for eight years and now for four years, we've had a racist, I mean, a blatantly racist president. Right. So, I mean, that's just an easy kind of hot topic, you know, present example. So to answer your question, you know, I, I share that because that that idea kind of shaped things for me. Like, yeah, it's it's too easy of a, speaking of storytelling, right? It's too easy of a narrative just to say, oh, well, in 2020, we're way better than we were in 1965 or 1865 or 17, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's not, tr- it's just not true. Right. So, yes, I am seeing more empathy. I am seeing more white folks uh, interested in what's going on and pushing through their discomfort at various uh, levels, various, <laughs> um, <laughs> various ways in, in various degrees. And I, and I'm sure you are, seeing a lot of pushback, a lot of um, heavy resistance yeah and 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 fear i mean i think i think it's robin d'angelo who says you know when you're used to 100 percent, 98 percent feels oppressive yeah so i think i think we're feeling that right now i mean as we're recording in late october it was about a month ago uh you know when president trump passed his executive order that says you know any government contractors doing you know so-called diversity training I don't remember all the details, but basically you can't talk about any race, you know, all these like very specific yeah. uh, things that were, in his words, were, you know, divisive. And so you have that pushback to the progress we're trying to make. So, you know, George Floyd wasn't the first black person to be murdered by the cops, but he he was perhaps the first black person to be murdered by the cops in such a brutal way while we're on a worldwide uh, you know, lockdown, health pandemic, and people are feeling more vulnerable, just in stressed and overwhelmed right. and uncertain. So there's all these factors kind of coming together that I think, I hope the empathy will outweigh the the lack of empathy. I mean, I think it'll be, I think it'll be <laughs> a process. It is a process. And what is heartening to me is that it's all pretty much out in the open now in a way that before it was it was less so like there it was you know there were just as many hurdles and like you know racist institutions upheld because it was just like smoothed over with like nice language or whatever it was and and now because we've all been sort of 
like grounded airplanes during this time. We are mm-hmm. watching everything unfold plain as day. And so the pushback you talk about, yeah, a hundred percent it's there. And also it can't, it has nowhere to hide anymore. That fear has nowhere to hide anymore. Yeah, no, you're, you're yeah. absolutely right. It's, um, it's, that's why, you know, we have to keep doing, doing the work because it can easily, especially for white folks and other folks of privilege can easily sl- slip back into complacency. And I mean, I, I said, I think, I think before we started recording, um, you know, I'm just kind of, just kind of feeling, I think I said this to you, maybe it was someone else. I'm getting my conversations mixed up, but <laughs> kind of feeling a little bit burned out lately, just in general, wow. right? Just, you know, with everything that's going on, kids and, you know, trying to get them back to school and, you know, um, yeah. work and just, uh, you know. Are they going in person? Or are they uh, not yet? I have sixth grade twins, um, 11 year old twins. So they're actually going to start kind of phasing in in person next week. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, and it's but anyway, I mean, I share all this because I'm just I'm kind of what I really want right now is just to like just meditate for two weeks. Yeah. But it's not realistic because I have to work and, you know, I have responsibilities and kind of stuff. So I know it's it's so intense and i think doing the kind of work that you do which is very it very much requires you to show up with your whole self and your whole heart you know and you can't you can't phone it in the way you could if you were just like filling in excel spreadsheets so (laughs) exactly it requires a lot um i i want to i want to go back quickly to the um to the idea of a narrative as opposed to a story Mm -hmm. uh and I wonder if you have any shining moments of memory of a moment when you saw somebody's narrative kind of break apart in real time while you were doing your job. If you saw, I'm super interested in like breakthrough moments, aha moments, moments when people realize that their narrative is limited or, or flawed. Put you on the spot. No, totally. No, I don't feel I, I, I never feel put on the spot. Um, you know, I would love I probably do. And I would love to share, you know, oh, yeah, this one time this client. But, but the reality is that it usually doesn't work that way. Oh, yeah. How does it work? It, it usually doesn't like it's not like an epiphany type thing i mean i'm not saying it doesn't happen or it hasn't happened or you know someone listening like well i had an epiphany well great i'm sure you did but so it's not like <laughs> but for in my experience it's it's kind of you know for anyone who's a parent out there it's like you teach you're trying to teach your kids whatever you know how to how to be respectful and how to behave and how you know all these like kind of you know all the things they they teach you in kindergarten and you're not going to get instant gratification like it's going to be when they're 25 and they're out of college and they go hey dad thanks for teaching me how to be blah 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 i'm like oh yeah you're welcome right Right. so maybe it doesn't take that long with a with a person's story but um it's mostly because when i work one-on-one with people on their narrative it's kind of like therapy and i'm not a therapist but i do have a coaching background i was a teacher for 12 years so um, I kind of play a therapist on TV, you know, sometimes, um, but it really is they're they're coming to me because they want some clarity of how to position themselves in their various contexts, whether it's professional, maybe they're looking for a new job or they want to transition careers, but often it's just personal, like, hey, I want to just be more impactful. Um, uh-huh. And so I have learned, and any coaches out there would appreciate this, I think that my job is to ask the right questions, to challenge them to think differently, to explore um, things that they perhaps hadn't thought of. And then as we've been talking about, you know, in this conversation, like sit with that uncertainty with these new realizations or new um, possibilities to explore. And as I said, you know, just a minute ago, like it usually doesn't go like, Oh my God, you're right. I never thought of it that way. It's more like, okay, yeah, I get okay, right. And then you have to you have to process, it. right. And so, you know, one of my favorite 
good friend and, and storytelling coach is Michael Margolis. He says, you know, you can't change your past, but you can change your relationship to it. So when we talk about, you know, uh, really developing and embodying your, your narrative, that's really what the work is. Hey, this, you know, this happened to you. You know, you were X years old when Y happened and you met, you know, A person and, and, and B person did this to you, you know, all these events, right? So, like, you can't change that. You can't go like, oh, actually, you know what? I'm going to go back and change and have my dad not tell me he was gay when I was 14. Like, I mean, you can't, you can't do that. But what you can do is change how, how you see how you've evolved from there. And so, so anyway, that's, that's the work. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm just keep thinking like, oh, can I share? Is there something, some like, and I, I can't think of anything, honestly, like that's coming, like where someone just went, whoa, I got it. Um, well, I mean, but that's okay because this is a, this is a true response and the true response yeah. is, that, is that change does take integration, which is often like a slow crescendo. Um, mm -hmm. I find as a, as a storyteller, as like an essay writer myself, you know, there are points in the story where you're supposed to, you know, lead to a climax to a, some kind of aha moment. And that's the point where it pivots. And then you have this conclusion and how I run into the issue all the time of, there wasn't just one moment. It's sort of several moments that that built up and all of a sudden I turn around and realize I'm a different person from who I used to be. So mm -hmm. that checks out, that checks out to me. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess I was putting a little bit of pressure on me to like come up with a, an awesome, uh, you know. No, awesome I was putting pressure on me. No, 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 but uh, it is, it's, you gotta enjoy, you gotta enjoy the, the the self-reflection, the self-empathy, self-compassion. One thing we haven't really kind of said, I don't think by word, but it's kind of, I think it's implied in all this is curiosity too, about yourself, yes. about other people, about, about your own evolution. It's a very meta, it's very, the work is very meta, uh, you know. And I mean, the curiosity has to start with your own self. Like, how am I, how am I different today? What do I feel today? that's different from yesterday. Um, yeah. Uh, I wonder if you, um, if this rubs off on your kids, if they get, if they get sick of like self-help talk or if they're on board. <laughs> um, I, I think both. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny cause you know, I, and this isn't unique to me. I don't think actually, I know it's not, you know, here I am, with clients and and partners and and colleagues and stuff talking about you know, like empathy and taking care of you know ourselves and each other and facilitating these conversations and shifting mindsets you know all this stuff that we've been talking about right and then you know at home it's like yeah. hey guys yeah, st stop it I'm on a call stop it <laughs> right <laughs> It's like, so it's like, wait, how come? And that's, I think that's just natural. Like we have, you know, it's hard to, you know, it's, what is, what is the, there's some phrase about like, it's hard to love, you know, the people kind of closest to you. So, so I get some shtick from my kids and my partner about, you know, like, oh, here you are all day talking about empathy and, you know, and, you know, patience and mindfulness and then you're snapping at us you know at dinner it's like and not like every day but i think yeah, there is that and it's good it's healthy it's it keeps me you know on track and keeps me grounded to to I, hear that it happened it's happened to me it's happened to me a bit lately i think because i'm also a little bit burned out on this it affects me to be alone so much of the time when i feel like i'm a very social person and so you know, if I'm needing to process something, I will often project it onto my partner. And it's crazy because when you are, when you've been doing the work enough and you're mindful enough, you can sit back here and see it happening and yet you can't stop yourself. So like mm -hmm. these two different versions of yourself, the more evolved and the less evolved, both functioning. Well, there's, a, there's a, it, exactly. I mean, and that's, that's what, it, I mean, that's where the mindfulness part comes into all this, right? There's a great story I love. Um, if my 
family was here, they'd be rolling their eyes because I tell it so often. But And I'm not really a sports guy anymore, so it's funny that I keep using this story. It's of Joe Montana, right, huh. the, fam- the famous San Francisco 49ers quarterback. So I guess, and I don't know where I heard the story. I don't even know if it's true. It could be totally made up, but I still like it. I guess Joe Montana was at a party, and he was having a drink, and he was you know talking with some people, and he was telling them, he said, yeah, I'm sending my son, he's in high school, I'm sending him to quarterback camp this summer. And then the, his party mates or whatever were like, wait, you're, you're Joe Montana, you're like the greatest quarterback of all time, like, why are you sending your son to quarterback camp? Like, why don't you just teach him yourself? And Joe Montana looks back and says, clearly you've never been a dad. <laughs> right? Exactly. So it's this idea that sometimes, you know, we hurt the one, you know, what is it? The, the cobbler's. The cobbler's ha- children have holes in their shoes. Yeah. Some, yeah. It's that, that, you know, cliche or, uh, or proverb or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but, so I think there is some of that sometimes. Um, and like all this work, it's just, it's being mindful of it and pushing through and being receptive when you get that criticism from, you know, from your 11 year old son or from your partner or from, someone who calls you out on your, on your stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, it's about being, being really real. And if we're really Mm -hmm. talking about empathy and we're really talking about vulnerability, that means being super honest about when we see ugliness in ourselves or when we act in a way that we wouldn't approve of and just be, just be honest about it. Like there are just not put any layers between the truth of what's happening, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jared, is there anything else that you would like to, that you'd like to say, or some anything that we've skipped over that you feel is important before we wrap mm, up? I mean, probably, but I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm an extrovert. I could talk for hours, but I don't know that people would want to listen to to me or us for hours. So, no, I think we've covered a lot of good stuff um, that's important to me, relevant to me, and I and I I think and hope. Um, important and relevant to to your listeners, so um, I'm not going to try and end with any sort of uh, you know pithy saying, um, but I'll just no, it... <laughs> I don't I don't have any I don't have any uh, you know. I've been writing down all these quotes. <laughs> it's like this amazing curator like composite of all of these brilliant quotes, and uh, and I, I just really hope that the listeners will go find you because you're just always sharing just such delicious goodies and really exposing yourself and your soft parts publicly and i think it's a beautiful example of humanity so well thank you very much lissa i appreciate the compliment and the conversation and the friendship so thank you so much thank you jared you're welcome thanks for tuning in to episode 16 of what's betwixt us stories of working while human to learn more about jared's work and honestly just for a big dose of inspiration check out jaredcarroll.com. That's Carol with a K, K-A-R-O-L.com. And find him on LinkedIn. Trust me, you won't regret it. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany, designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at Z-A-N-I-E dot A-P-P. Human first, everything else after. Human first. Everything else.